Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to catch up with our industry colleagues and partners to discuss the market and macro environment, along with thinking when it comes to asset allocation. Joining me here from the UBS Chief Investment Office, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. We're excited to have with us as well for his first appearance here on How Should I Be Positioned, Vincent Mortier, the Group Chief Investment Officer with Amundi. So with that, Jason, Vincent, thank you both for dropping by the podcast, for spending some time with our listeners and our clients. Looking forward to hearing your thinking. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Vincent, for, for joining us for the first time. So there's plenty to catch up on, maybe beginning with the big picture, discussing the U.S. economy. Vincent, what are your thoughts on the resiliency demonstrated throughout the course of 2023? And as we look ahead, namely into the first half of 2024, what are your thoughts on the prospects for a soft landing versus a recession? Yeah, sure. Thanks. In fact, to be very frank, we have been uh, surprised by the resiliency of the U.S. economy. And this resiliency uh, for us has been essentially driven by uh, quite ample spending, both from the government, with a very high budget deficit, and also from households who have uh, used, in fact, their savings accumulated during the COVID period. So in, in a way, this growth has been fueled by uh, some, uh, some additional debt, and, and, and as a result, it may be seen as partly artificial. Uh, the issue is now the hard part is coming, actually. The cost of debt is much higher. And, and just for next year, uh, it, uh, around 3, 4% of GDP will be spent in interest spending. Uh, most of the savings have been uh, used or depleted. And there are more spending to be funded. So you, you are, of course, aware of the student loans repayment, the IRA Act and the CHIPS Act. Uh, energy transition, lots of things to be financed. So in that context, and, and given all the data we are seeing uh, on the ground lately, uh, we continue to believe that the U.S. is due for a recession uh, next year. Our base case is starting to next year. And the big question we have uh, within the team is uh, for how long and how deep. And on this, the jury is still out. So we are not exactly aligned with the consensus, which is clearly uh, on the camp of uh, soft landing or no landing sometimes. So we continue to believe uh, that uh, the U.S. growth is overdone and, uh, and a recession is coming. Thank you, Vincent, for sharing your thoughts. So sticking with this, Jason, I know we've recently discussed CIO's market outlook per the latest UBS house view. Can you expand a bit on what CIO's thinking is when it comes to the U.S. economy, where it stands today, and what the prospects are for a recession as we head into 2024? Well, the, the CIO view you know, is that we don't expect a recession, you know, at least in the next 12 months, that it's it trended towards a softish landing, you know, so, you know, below trend growth, but avoiding a recession, at least over that kind of you know, horizon of about the next 12 months. The, the data, as it's coming in almost every single day, kind of reaffirms that view and, and if anything, almost leads us to think that the probability of recession uh, on that horizon is going down. Just, you know, if you look at the data that's come out of the past, you know, a week or two for October or for September, whether it's the labor market data that's showing strength and we've got the most recent uh, just jobless claims, it's the lowest in, in nine months, so no real signs of weakness there. Consumer spending is holding up. 
Uh, and thus far, the move higher in rates hasn't seemed to have had much of a drag on, on that activity. It should eventually, but all of us suggest that the, the momentum is strong enough that uh, at least in the next couple of quarters, barring some sort of adverse shock, it's hard to construct a scenario where you get a, a recession. The further you go into 2024, the probability increases, but you know we still feel reasonably comfortable that at least on that horizon, we avoid uh, a recession. Uh, but you know, given that I think our views on this differ a little bit, Vincent, you know, if you think a recession is sort of likely you know, at some point, you know, next year, let's say the next 12 months, you cited some reasons why we haven't had one yet, whether it's, you know, you know uh, stronger fiscal support uh, than expected, uh, you, know, you know, consumers taking on debt. If among the different catalysts or reasons why it's also, you know, avoid a recession, like what would you point to is like, here's the number one factor that we think would be driving a recession. It's just higher rates. And at some point that the likes of monetary policy will work. They just haven't kicked in yet. Is that ultimately the key component to drive in your view? Well, clearly for us, um, if we are talking about um, in, in our in our scenario, um, uh, if you have a recession uh, coming, for sure uh, rates should uh, should come down. So that's why we are uh, long duration. Even though we believe inflation will uh, will not go um, to two percent easily and quickly, it will uh, probably stabilize. Uh, Around 3%, but in terms of, uh, of allocation, uh, US 10 year at, at 5%, uh, almost, uh, as we speak, uh, is a great opportunity given this, this macro context. And, and in fact, if you have higher rates coming, it will be a big drag on the economy. Um, and you know, there is a big lag effect that you need to keep in mind, uh, and the pain uh, will, be, will be felt with 6 months, 12 months lag. Uh, and I'm afraid that um, we will start to really see the pain on the corporates in particular um, only from Q2, Q3 next year. So that's why, I mean, um, uh, this high rate environment is um, is, uh, is bad news, uh, basically, for, uh, for, for next year momentum. And as a result, uh, given uh, our best scenario for the economy, we strongly believe that uh, 10-year US uh, typically will uh, drift down 50, 100 bips uh, next year. So that's why we are um, we are uh, we are long uh, treasuries uh, today, and we also believe that the Fed will start uh, probably uh, cutting rate uh, somewhere uh, mid next year, uh, given this context. But on the back of bad news, actually, uh, it, it, it won't it won't be of course good news around. Uh, now, I do want to stick with the Fed, Vincent. Uh, following the September pause, how do you see the Fed acting from here to perhaps further combat inflation while also balancing the risk of over-tightening? Can you speak a bit to your expectations for monetary policy a near term as we're looking ahead to the Fed meeting next week, what that might deliver? Yeah, sure. Um, to be very frank, uh, um, I, don't want, I don't want to be in the seat of uh, Jeff Powell. Huh? I think it's a, it's a very difficult position. The more time is passing by, the more the risk of a policy mistake is growing, and the Fed is um, is, um, is faced with a, a real dilemma between growth, inflation. Uh, we should not underestimate the determination of the Fed. Uh, it's a question of credibility, uh, and it's very important. And um, and, and and we we think the the, uh, the Fed will probably continue to have a hawkish narrative, but we don't believe the Fed will hike again because, in fact, the market is hiking for the Fed, actually. So currently, what is happening 
is 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 a monetary uh, tightening uh, provided by the market. So given uh, we, be, we continue to believe that data will be a little bit softer. It's not yet the case, hein, but it will become softer, and and the Fed is very well aware about uh, the risks to the economy. So so we our best scenario is that the Fed will continue to pause. Um, until having more clarity on the trajectory of inflation and, more importantly, on uh, the health of the uh, U.S. economy. So, uh, so, uh, so we don't expect uh, any further, uh, further hike, to be clear. Jason, what about your thoughts? My expectation at the moment is that the Fed uh, won't hike again, uh, which is, might seem at odds with the fact that the economic data has been coming in you know, stronger than expected. But the you know some of the underlying trends still point at least on the inflation side to you know, to cooling. A strong labor market is you know that's true, but at the same time wage growth has been trending lower throughout the year. So from the Fed's perspective, the labor market is rebalancing. That's a key focus for them. Uh, other leading indicators on inflation would all suggest it's kind of going lower. So there's enough justification for the Fed to you know, not hike in, in November, especially as, as Vincent alluded to, higher rates are sort of doing the job for the Fed. You know, we can estimate what's the equivalent uh, number of Fed hikes for the 10-year going up, say, 70, 80 basis points since the beginning of September. And you can say that, you know, that's equivalent to almost like one or two hikes. So if that's happened and it holds, then it's a reason for the Fed not necessarily to do any more, at least in November, with the idea that they will give themselves a option to you know, keep a hike on the table for December or even January with more information. I think from the market's perspective, if they don't hike in November under these conditions, it will probably treat it as the Fed is done hiking, uh, despite what the Fed might say in terms of its language and trying to keep all options open. Because if they don't hike under these conditions, the economy does slow, I think, as we and, and most people expect, then there's lots of reasons sort of for, for them to hike again in, at all in December or January. Mm. So really the focus then becomes when do they start cutting. And I just want to go back to a point, if I, if I understood you correctly, Vincent, you you know, believe growth will slow enough next year, so it's for weakening growth reasons that the Fed will cut, but still think inflation could be... Yes, sorry to, to interrupt. Now, in fact, uh, our best scenario is for inflation to be anchored at 3% around, between 3 3.5, for quite some time, quite some quarters or even years, and then to be quite volatile around it. So meaning uh, it will be above the Fed target uh, because of... Uh, all the um, uh, the big investments that uh, that are underway in the U.S. and also uh, commodities will take their toll, huh? especially if geopolitics continue to be a hotspot. So, so I mean, the, the, uh, I'm afraid that the, the inflation will uh, will continue to be a little bit high, not at alarming level. So that's why the Fed may uh, may, may be more or less comfortable with it, but uh, but, but but we don't see. Um, uh, inflation going, going back to 2% and being uh, after encore at 2% forever. If I then were to characterize your outlook with inflation being a little bit sticky around that 3, 3.5% range, uh, only very gradually declining, yet growth <laughs> excuse me, does go down, that's a, yep. a little bit stagflationary, right? You know, so it's not a, which, not a great outlook for, certainly for the Fed, as you said, that's not a seat you want to be in if you're, if you're Jay Paul having to deal with those conditions. Uh, but I just want to like that's, that's kind of how you're kind of that's driving your overall investment view. That kind of view on the, on the U.S. economy is leading towards a stagflation dynamic for 2024. Okay. Yes. yes. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I guess that's some of the key question is, 
if growth does slow, does inflation then kind of come down quickly with it, in which case then the Fed does have room to cut. And you know, I would tend to lean towards that. But there's on the supply side, there's issues that are you know, unpredictable. You know, just even like the price of oil, we, there's the risk that it could go much higher, which is, is a negative shock for, for the economy. So that's where those forces of maybe demand cooling, bringing down inflation versus supply issues, keeping inflation higher, that's, that is the real kind of the, the downside. I view that more as a downside scenario for, for next year as opposed to you know, the base case, but you know, time will tell. What about your thoughts, Vincent, on equity valuations, where those stand today? And as we look ahead, what are your thoughts on return drivers for equities? And do you have any preferred sectors or regions at this time? Yeah, sure. So when, when, when you look um, on the surface, huh, uh, equities are on average expensive. So I mean, uh, the main indexes, so S&P 500 or NASDAQ, uh, are not cheap by historical standards or when you factor in uh, some earning growth forecast, um, it, it, I mean, we are not uh, super expensive, but it's not cheap for sure. But under the, the surface, the reality is much more diverse. There is a big dispersion between companies, between sectors, and uh, and the market attention and the volumes are in fact focused um, on a few names, which are still priced for some kind of perfection. And uh, there is another part of the market, which is a big part, which is uh, ignored uh, or not really uh, fashionable, let's say. So, for example, um, uh, I, I noticed a few days ago that the volumes traded on NVIDIA has been on a given day higher than the volumes of the entire continental European market. So it is showing the, the activity and the interest of uh, the investors to, towards certain names. So we believe there has been excesses built in some parts of the market that we need to, to be corrected. But other parts, are, are even today, are cheap. So Russell 2000 is a perfect example of that. There are also multiple value names uh, everywhere in the U.S. in Europe, which are super cheap, with high single-digit dividend yields. So we like, uh, we continue to like uh, energy, some utilities, some uh, banks, uh, and some boring companies in a way, but which are offering a good value for money today. And we are much more selective on some uh, growth names, which are uh, in, in our mind too expensive. And which have not really corrected, uh, despite the higher rate environment, which is also a kind of surprise. So, um, so we have a, a portfolio construction which is um, more and more in bubble between uh, different categories of, uh, of stocks. So, uh, in a nutshell, it's uh, more focused on uh, quality and value, and uh, and underweight in all the. Uh, very gross part of the market, in particular the non-profitable, non-profitable growth. Thinking about the economics again, we've talked a lot about what the, the U.S. outlook is, uh, you know, kind of slowing down next year with inflation being sticky. Mm. For the past, I think, three or four months, there's been kind of a term used in the market for a little bit of like kind of uh, like American exception. Like it seems to be holding on much better than other mm. parts of, at least of the developed world. So how do you view... So maybe in contrast, the the outlook for the European economy, which has certainly probably slowed a little bit more. Uh, you know, China's had its own kind of drivers this year. So just from a kind of high level, kind of global perspective, you know, maybe Europe, emerging markets, China. How do you see them 
you know, going forward and maybe relative to the U.S.? And is that exceptionalism, as you sort of coming down, are those countries sort of reversing in terms of their performance next year? How do you sort of see the global landscape? Yeah, sure. Um, Europe is um, is uh, subdued in terms of growth. Huh? It's uh, around zero growth this year. Next year, probably the same. So very, very limited, uh, if any, growth uh, and potentially recession as well. With Germany being um, more and more challenged, huh, to be clear, um, and, um, and and for sure the prospects of the European economy uh, is not great. It's not very bad, but it's not great. But the markets have already um, uh, pressed it in a way. I mean, when you look at the metrics and comparable metrics sector by sector, European equities are uh, 20-30% cheaper than US equities with the same kind of metrics. So, so there is a discount to, to European shares for, for good reasons. Um, and so that's why we are also uh, neutral or slightly underweight on Europe. Where you can find growth is in the emerging markets, in particular uh, in Asia. India, for sure. Hein. India is 5 to 6% GDP growth uh, year after year. Uh, also, Asia, Indonesia uh, in particular. Even China. Uh, China is, uh, is not as bad as uh, most people think uh, on the ground. And more importantly, uh, these markets, except India, but these markets are very, very cheap. So uh, Chinese equities are uh, on price earning ratio two times uh, cheaper than U.S. For good reasons as well. Huh? There are some uh, risk premium to be added, but I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, 10 times price earning. It's becoming very cheap given the prospects of most companies and of the country. So, so I mean, U.S. remains, if I may say, the king market. So the market where everybody wants to be invested. It is where you have the, 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 the biggest and the best value names. It is where you have uh, growth and innovation, for sure. But this is already pricing in a way. So, so that's why um, we, we, we think it's, it's uh, today a good moment to diversify in terms of geography, in our sector, and to look for uh, growth uh, and investment cases um, beyond the, the borders. And typically, uh, Panasia, from Japan to uh, to India, um, and, and going through all the countries in the region, is uh, is a medium-long-term uh, strategic queen, uh, we believe. And and, and again, it's it's a, it's a good value for money uh, at current uh, price earnings. Um, so so it's, I mean, it's uh, it's really a question of uh, risk reward at the end of the day. And uh, so it's not to say that U.S. companies are bad. It's just uh, if you want to buy the best U.S. companies, you have to pay a premium, which is uh, changeable in our mind, given the prospects you have. So on the other side of it, if we look at fixed income, bonds remain CIOs, preferred asset class over equities. So at the moment, where are you seeing the most opportunity across fixed income? We like duration as well, um, you know, and it's in sort of high quality duration. So one of our key messages is you buy quality bonds. Whether it is, uh, you know, treasuries, high quality unis, investment grade corporate bonds that are yielding now you know, over, you know, 6%, something they haven't done in, in many years, uh, you know, mortgage backed securities, uh, which are basically government guaranteed, you traded a significant spread to treasuries, but have been hurt by the rate rise, uh, given the sort of the you know, disruptions that's caused to the overall, you know, bond market. So these are things we like. 
you know, you know, a lot of it is, you know, contingent on the belief that as the economy slows um, and as the market moves toward thinking that Fed will cut, especially if the economy slows, that yields will drift lower. In the very short term, as we've just seen in the past couple of days, you know, yields, uh, the 10-year yield has now hit a cycle high just you know, overnight. So could it, you know, go over 5%, you know, in, in the very near term, that's, that's impossible. But I think at some point, you know, the, the solution or the cure for high rates are high rates, meaning this, the drag on economic activity will become more apparent, and then investors will realize that growth slowdown is, is really coming, rates are going to decline, and then you get, you know, maybe a, quite a notable a bond rally. This could be slightly early, you know, picking the timing is, is difficult, but I think as a fundamental view, that's something that we, we like. Uh, at the same time, if the Fed is done, I think there's a good chance that's the case. For investors who have been sitting in, you know, a lot of cash or very, very short maturity instruments, uh, because you can get paid just sitting in cash, I think you have to now be very conscious of there's going to be a reinvestment risk if the Fed does start cutting next year, uh, and you don't get the same duration benefit in your total return by hiding on cash as opposed to buying longer duration bonds. So that's the general way we're thinking about fixed income. Cautious on credit risk overall, just because uh, you know now you can actually get pretty decent yield without taking a, a lot of a credit risk, and, and if things do slow down, um, it's not clear that you know a lot of the, the riskier parts of the credit markets are, are fully priced for that at this point in time. Thank you, Jason. And then Vincent, over to you for final thoughts. Yeah, uh, for sure. I, I totally share the views uh, expressed. I mean, we, uh, on average, we prefer bonds over equities. Um, and equity, uh, govies, uh, we are much more cautious on low quality credit. So let's say the exit space, which is in our mind too expensive today because the credit spreads have been kept uh, quite low given the, the rise of alternative financing options like private debt, which as a result is also becoming more challenging in terms of long-term risk rewards. So, so we are, um, we are very um, positive or constructive on, uh, on high grade. On uh, on uh, on uh, MBS as well, huh, as, uh, uh, so as we're still aligned, and we are underweight. Uh, I would say uh, below uh, below uh, double B uh, to to be clear, or even uh, triple B. We start to to, to become more cautious. So um, so I think we are very well aligned huh, with the UBS views on this. Well, Vincent, Jason, thank you both again for spending some time with our listeners, our clients today here on How Should I Be Positioned. Great discussion. Really appreciate you sharing your insights with our listeners, our clients. Uh, thank you again for your time today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And from UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.